0: You know, this is going back six, seven years ago. You were talking about using this guy yeah. as a way to get uh, new donations. And so I wanted to kind of pick your brain and see where you're at. But uh, first, let me give you a proper introduction. Brian Kish is the president of the Emerald Lagasse Foundation and has worked in annual giving for a prof- and a professional consultant for over 18 years. Before joining the Emerald Lagasse Foundation, Brian served as Senior Vice President for Development at the University of Arizona Foundation, Assistant Vice President for Advancement at Salve Regina University, and Senior Director of Development for the University of California, Irvine. His work has encompassed all university and annual giving initiatives, as well as giving societies. Grateful patient fundraising comprehensive campaigns, and major giving. Brian knows cutting edge strategies in direct mail, telemarketing, e-philanthropy, and day of giving initiatives. He's also experienced in budget development and management, affinity giving programs, and the use of technology in fundraising, gift club marketing, statistical data analysis, and strategic planning. In addition to his extensive development background, Brian is a frequent speaker and professional at professional conferences throughout North America, having served as chair or uh, or faculty in 35 development conferences and making over 100 professional presentations. He has been awarded the Case Crystal Apple for teaching excellence, the youngest person to ever receive this honor. Additionally, Brian. Hosts collaborative benchmarking meetings for Target Analytics, a Blackboard company, and he graduated cum laude from uh, international and in international relations from Ohio University. and In 2002, received the C.F.R.E. or Certified Fundraising Executive designation. Brian, thanks so much.
1: My pleasure. Adam.
0: Thanks. Yeah, I thank appreciate you, Alex.
1: It. You bet.
0: Um. So first off, you're very accomplished, you know, in uh, in the world of development and fundraising. I just wanted to see, you know, what led you to this career, and and um, what do you what do you love about it? What do you like about it?
1: Yeah, you bet. You know, it it uh, it all started with a girl, as the story starts. <laughs> uh, freshman English class or whatever level it was, there was a sophomore there, and her job was student caller at the Phonothon at Ohio University. Okay. And uh, I'll never, I won't say her name. I doubt she's listening, but uh, I won't say her name. But I, you know, ooh. And so she told me about her job, and I, I want to work there. Well, she quit afterwards. No, no surprise. Um, but I started working at the Phonathon, and I was a student caller, and and I was good at it, and I enjoyed it, and got paid well, and then a student manager, and then ran it one summer, and then took over the Phonathon at Iowa State University, and the rest is history. And I think Alex, we're seeing more and more of that. You know, when I got into this in '96 it was a second career for a lot of people in development. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think now we see it's the first career. We see people, uh, you know, coming out of phone a or, or student alumni association programs. And I think that's wonderful. I think it's professionalizing our business. I think things that you're doing and in and case and AFP and all these others, we're, we're really professionalizing what we do. And I think that's amazing. It's, you know, it's a multi-billion um, um, dollar business here in the United States and worldwide. And it needs to be professionalized. So that's how I got into it and I've had great mentors that have kept me in along the way. And, um, you know, you ask the question of what I like best about it. And, and I say this all the time, but other jobs, we see the worst of people in, in philanthropy. Mm-hmm. We see the very best of people and that's amazing. Um, you know, philanthropy broken down is phylos anthropos, the love of humankind. And and that's what that's, this is. I remember as I was driving out to Iowa, and you know, pardon me, I have some allergies. So, um, I was driving out to Iowa and my mother, who grew up pretty blue collar and didn't go to college, said, Brian, why do people give money? That makes no sense to me. Um, And we just, she did, she did give. She didn't think about it with alma mater's and universities, but maybe your church or local communities. Um, And it's an interesting thing, right? That people don't have to give, but they choose to give. And when we can be a part of that experience and make everyone feel great about it, it's it's we're blessed to be in this business
0: you know uh reflecting back on your on your parents you mentioned um you know you were really good at the phonathon, which was you know uh still in existence and and for those that don't know it's it's um well i don't know i don't think it's completely cold calling um but it's it is a an element of cold calling donors and alumni um Do you think you were successful of that because of your parents were, was there a sales background in your family?
1: Yeah. Interesting enough, not at all. Um, Not at all. They were kind of the complete opposite. However, I had an older brother that got into politics um, and worked for uh, a party, a state party. And then I started interning um, with those. And obviously around politics, a lot of it's fundraising and asking people, for that. And my older brother was my idol and I wanted to be him. That's how I got international relations and and political science. I wanted to be him. And part of it was fundraising. Mm -hmm. The other is public speaking. I got into public speaking a lot in high school and going to competitions and all of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where I got it. The the other thing though, inadvertently, my parents taught me and how I became a good fundraiser is I had to pay for my college 100%. We didn't have the ability. And so as I spoke to people, I could speak passionately about what I was asking for. And it was real to me um, that I got some small scholarships. And if I didn't have those, I wasn't going to be in school. And that's true for a lot of people. And as we mm-hmm. think about when we work for an organization, um, Alex, you just tell me where you work as well, um, full time. We have to believe in what we're doing. And if we do and we're genuine about it, um, mm-hmm. it's going to help us in our practice. So inadvertently, they did, they did help me.
0: Okay. Uh, getting into some of the the organizational questions and uh, um, kind of practicality questions, you know, in your uh, bio, you, you've managed a lot of shops, both large and small. And I think a lot about, you know, when you want to turn an organization around, or you want to start maybe growing the the dollars and the donors. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things is. I think of, and let me know if you go here too, is is getting your staff and development yeah. team to buy in. And yeah. um, how do we start to shift the culture, I think, at organizations um, towards really supporting development and fundraising staff?
1: Yeah, great question, Alex. I, I agree 100%. It's all about staff. You know, I'm not one of those folks that read a lot of books about business and management, all that, but there's a couple. Um, you know, one is from good to great and talks about getting the right people on the bus before you even get the bus moving. Right. And I'm a big believer of that. I learned that from my mentor, a gentleman named by Tom Mitchell, who's the head of advancement down at Florida and has been president of I don't know how many boards and all that. A great teacher. And that's everything I've learned is from my mentors and he's one of them. But he, he talks about getting the right people. And It doesn't matter necessarily. Do they have the exact skills for the jobs you're hiring? Hire the right people with the right characteristics and then it's your job to train them and as he says you train them and then you get the hell out of the way and let them do their job and remove obstacles along the way but let's kind of go back to the beginning once you find those people then it's everyone getting together and giving them a voice i believe um and saying all right what is our values here and i want everyone to collectively come together and agree on what those values are and it's just not gonna be words that we're gonna put up on a wall. We're gonna come back and talk about them and ensure that we're all going to adhere to those values. And they don't have to be the values. If you're in a development shop at an institution, a university, it doesn't have to be the same values as um, as the university says. Or if you're at a uh, an art museum, it doesn't have to be the exact same things as the museum, but as your team, what are you guys agreeing to? What is your pact amongst each other? Um, and how are we gonna work and act? I remember um, when I reapplied for this job at the Emeril Lagasse Foundation, so for folks that are listening that don't know, um, if you're a little bit older, you will know, but uh, Chef Emerald, one of the most famous chefs in the world, was my idol before I even met him. There I am interviewing with him for this job. I mean, this is truly my dream job. I mean, I got this when I was 40, and I thought, oh, my God, the only great thing about this job or the only bad thing about this job is what if I don't get this job or what if what happens? Because there's nothing after this. This is it. And it's been a dream for six years. But I remember meeting with Emeril. And let's see if I have it laying around here. It's normally right on my desk. But it's funny. I took it home now that we're working at home. Literally, normally it's right here next to me. And I remember meeting with him. And and when we jived, when he told me about a book called um, The Power of Thinking Big. It was made in like the 70s, written in the 70s. Still very relevant today. And again, I'm quoting these books. And I really don't read that many management books. But it was about this idea of how to think big. Um, and that's something... That I believe and it's something that when I'm putting my team together, we need to think that way. So one of the things I do is anytime someone new comes on my team, I give them that book and I tell them I want it on your desk and I want you to you don't have to read it cover to cover. Just to really pick up something, read and, and look at it. It's really easy read. And I took mine home. It's funny enough because normally it is on my desk, but it's it's everyone agreeing to the same the same ways that weren't working as those values. And I think that's one of the most important things. We come back to them and strive them and strive them and push them all the time. So that's just one of the things.
0: Let me ask you this question. Do you value um, experience or uh, coachability? And uh, I guess I'll explain context. We were talking today in in the organization I work with and um, you know, they were talking about turnover and they were frustrated with, the younger staff turning over. And, yeah. um, you know, it's tough. Uh, I think there is obviously some generational divides going on, yeah, but I also agreed. think like, um, you know, getting people to buy in and, you know, coachability uh, is a big factor, which is a tough thing to get across into an interview. But, you know, what are the things you look at as far as exp- like, we, if you're looking to fill a seat, um, in your organization are you looking at experience um, coachability is it kind of like a just a guttural feel that you get yeah. across the interview
1: yeah you know no, great question i think especially as we're hiring younger folks into some of our lowing paying positions and our jobs and all that listen and again i want to go back to some great advice i had from some of my mentors If you're hiring someone for a position, assistant director, associate director, whatever it is, and they've already done that job somewhere else and it looks great on paper. Oh, great, this person knows how to do all this. Why are they applying for that job? And so he said, if they've already done it, why are you hiring them to do it again? Something's off there. And so he had a philosophy and I agree with this too, is hire someone that needs to stretch themselves to be successful in that job, but has the transferable skills that has the desire and then it has all those other intangibles and has those shared values that we've created. If you have those, then they can be successful. However, there's one step that gets missed that I think we mess up all the time. So a lot of institutions believe that and a lot of people that hire believe that. Not everybody, but a lot. The problem is we say, okay, great. You have the transferable skills. You're young, you're hungry. We have shared values. All right, I need to stretch to get this job, but you could do it. You know, um, great, you're know, you hired, here we go. I'm gonna uh, you know, mentor you for two weeks and then I'm off and, and see ya. It can't stop there, right? And that's the problem is when we hire people um, to stretch and to grow in a position, then we need to work with them to stretch and grow into that position. And that's not an easy task. We have to be there for them. And, and work with them over a period of time and continue to reward them and give them the skills along the way. And if so then it will work. So it's not just a one-sided thing. I think that's where we mess up. Um, I think the other place where we mess up sometimes, especially when I think about the very large organizations. So to your point, Alex, I worked, my current job, there's 10 of us. When I was at University of Arizona, just in advancement, I don't know, two or 300 of us. My staff alone was 100 people, I think, um, or close to it. Um we we make some some choices sometimes when we hire people to be in management positions. And you've probably seen this. Wow, you're a really good fundraiser on the road. I'm now going to bring you in the office and manage mm-hmm. other fundraisers. Well, mm-hmm. first of all, I just took you out of the thing that you're best at. And just because you're a good fundraiser doesn't mean you're a good manager. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we make that mistake sometimes too. And so now all right, we're going to stretch and hire people to go to these jobs, but this person that's managing you, that's supposed to be mentoring you and teaching you doesn't have the skill sets to do that either. So um, it's, it's complex, but um, to answer that question, that's how I look at uh, bringing people in. And those are the things that are important to me.
0: Let's shift to the other side. Um, um, so that's kind of the employee side and the internal side. Let's shift to the, um, our closest uh, external support. And that's the, the board of directors. Yeah. How do you manage the board of directors? I know it's a broad statement. No, it's a great question. A very tailored, you know, response. Um, I heard one uh, um, person—I won't mention their name—from the Rockefeller Foundation, um, and she basically said, "You know, the board is there to raise money. That's Mm -hmm. why the board is there." And um, what do you? How do you see it? And uh, how do you? Any tips or or insight you can you can share for? Uh, manage up, management board.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's been really interesting in the different roles that I've had um, really the last three to four jobs is, is, you know, whether it's managing a campaign chair or campaign board or, you know, a full executive board. So that's, you know, that's my job now. It, Emerald is the chair of our board, but he's a pretty busy guy. So I have a very active board, extremely active. Now that could be a good thing or a bad thing. I am blessed uh, that it's a good thing. So, a couple things that that I believe and that I've seen and why I really do believe we have a great board and I want to take a little bit of credit for recruiting and training the board and working with the board to your question. So the very first thing that we do when we think about a board is um, who do we want to bring out and people talk about diversity of a board. I think diverse thought is important. Diverse thought is important. Um, I also think diverse experience is important. And, uh, and I'll, I'll speak directly to diverse skill sets. So thinking about what do you need from your board and do you have the right board members to give you those things? So recently we were out um, looking for a couple, not out looking, but uh, we had some board turnover and we're having discussions about who we should add next to our board. And a couple of things we looked at. One, we said, we're, we're weak in legal. Um, I'd like to have someone on my board that is stronger in the legal world. And so luckily we had a great donor that had shown interest and we brought that person in. We were weak in an area where we had a lot of constituents and I wanted to grow, but I didn't have a really solid board member in that area. Again, so I I look at a variety of things of who do we want to add and what do we need to be successful? And what will that board member uh, take on to fill that? Now, there's no doubt about it. Fundraising is important. Um, but I I do go back to, and I tell this to my board and I'll go back to this in a moment too. Um, I want your talents, your treasure. So talents, right? I'm good at legal. I'm good at, um, I have another person that is the head of uh, visitor and tourism here. So he's great at marketing. He's not, he's not our biggest donor. That's not a surprise. I can say that on a podcast, (laughs) um, but he's there for that. That's what he's there for. And he knows that and we talk about that. So your talents. Your treasures, yes, I do want board members that can give. They all got to give something. How many zeros after that? Something, all depends. But they need to be donors. But yes, I do want some of my big donors. And yes, I do want them um, to know other big donors. And that's your tribe. So we say talents, treasures, and and tribe as well, I think is important. Um, And I'm missing a T for one moment, um, but it will come to me. But tribe is really important as well. And I think that's one that sometimes we don't always talk about and it's who do you know, who can you recruit and who can you pull in as well? And so, yeah. so when I meet with my board at the very beginning, we spend time doing an orientation and it's um, yeah. this, where we really spend the most time is talking about what the role is and what we expect of each other. And I talk about talents, treasures and tribe. Um, and then, and we, I, I literally say that, this is what I want of you guys um, and then, we have an agreement and i have each board member sign it and i in that mm. agreement i say here's what i'm going to ask of you mm. here's the things i'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you of this and here's the things i expect you will do you know give it at least a gift a year uh mm. introduce me to the people you know speak positively be educated ask me questions attend a board meeting whatever board meeting so i tell them and then on the back of that page is what right. i agreed to do i right. agree to be available to you i agreed to do this i agree to be transparent so that's really important. Then when we bring them in, I engage them as much as I want. I'm hundred percent transparent. I give them everything that they want or need. Uh, we do a lot of work in committees and less than overall board meetings. And um, every single one of those board members I could tell you has brought something because we clearly tell them ahead of time what that something is that we want and need. And uh, there, there's clear expectations
0: yeah, that's interesting. Setting the expectations up front, uh, so there's no surprise, I think is a really, really good thing um, and something to to really think about. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know the buzzword of uh, donor fatigue and sure. um, over asking. And I think a lot of you know nonprofits out there, um, go, well, how can I get more dollars, get more revenue? Or you're asking for new donors now. And um, you're limiting the number of times I can ask. So what would you say to those folks out there yeah. um, with yeah. that dilemma?
1: It's, you know, we have donor fatigue for a couple of reasons. Um, and, and I'm going to give two and then tell you why I don't think um, necessarily I Well, I'll come back to why. I think there's more to that question. So first of all, there's no doubt when we look at donors, number of guests to institutions nationwide and throughout North America, I do a lot of work with Target Analytics. I see it for higher ed and um, private schools nationwide. You can see it in any other report you want, number of guests to institutions are going down. And that's true for other nonprofits, even besides higher ed. Why is that? Well, number one, the number of nonprofits nationwide has increased. So there's more choice than ever before. The technology tools that we have allow those smaller institutions to be more nimble, to be quick and to solicit effectively and efficiently and cost efficiently as well. So we have more choices. We are focusing more international. So now we have a bigger market that's looking at us. And when we look at generational giving, when we look at Gen X, Gen Y, they tend to give to less number of organizations, not necessarily less money, but less number of organizations. So more to choose from, less Mm -hmm. number. Math says we're going to have less donors giving. So that's, that's our challenge one. Here is where I think we cause our own problems with donor fatigue is two things. One, I think we take our donors for granted. Straight up, plain and simple. We take our donors for granted. I always have to remind myself, no one owes us anything. I don't care if you graduated from school. I don't care if you went to a hospital and got the world's greatest surgery. In essence, you paid for that. Um, We can argue that debate, but anyway, you pay for that. It's your choice to make a gift. I have to earn that every single time I ask, and we forget that. So one is I think we take our donors for granted, and the other aspect that is, then we don't stewardship. We don't steward them well. We think we do, we send them a thank you letter, we send them a once a year video and all this. But the reason people stop giving to an institution is because they don't feel like their gift made a difference. And if my gift, if I felt so invested that my gift made a difference, You can ask me 100 times, and I'm not going to feel fatigued. Or at least I'm going to feel comfortable telling you no. I say no. But no is not necessarily fatigue. Fatigue is you've worn me down, and I can't, and I don't want to do anymore. I might tell you I can't now, or I love what you're doing, but um, I've already given as much as I can this year. But that's different than fatigue. And I think we do create fatigue because we don't steward, we don't show impact, and we take it for granted. And unfortunately, I feel like the larger the institution, the more that happens. That's where the smaller institutions, frankly, are are kicking the butts of some of the higher institutions that have relied for so long on just built in loyalty. Well, that's my local art museum, or that's my alma mater, um, or that's local hospital. You can't rely on loyalty. You have to rely on impact. And I think we need to all do a better job at that, including myself every day.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So speaking of um, stewardship. I want to kind of ask you two questions. What, is, what do you mean by stewardship? Because I think you have got a good definition of it and, and what are some practices you use to retain those donors?
1: Yeah. You know, um, let's go back to another question I asked earlier because it's good for staff and for donors. But first of all, I think um, we need to show that your gift made a difference. That, that's a really easy answer, but your gift made a difference um just thanking someone is is not your gift made a difference um and every gift makes a difference you know i was at an institution and this is when, for a moment i was in the business and felt kind of sickened by it it was a huge campaign we needed to raise i don't know it was like a million dollars every other day these mega billion dollar campaigns we had a board meeting and someone announced uh, we had the vp of um one of the units he was new and he was talking about his vision and one of the trustees stood up and said, you know what, I, I even your mission, I'm going to give you a million dollars unrestricted. And I'm not joking. To put it wherever you want to achieve your mission, we're so excited for what you're doing and that you're here. There was a nice golf clap. And then that was it. I'm like, this person just stood up and gave a million dollars and right. said, I trust you. Save the day. Yeah. We need to do more than a golf clap and say thank you. Um, we need to send better than a letter from the director of annual giving. Who gives a crap what the director of annual giving has to say, um, or the VP of development? I, I don't care what the VP of development has to say. Who cares what the president of Emeril Lagasse Foundation has to say? What did your give do? Can you show me? Show me. I think this is another challenge why we see decreasing, especially in higher ed. I'm going to speak to for a moment in number of donors and even others, nonprofits as well. Is we want unrestricted dollars to put them where we want for the institution. Well, where does the donor want to give? Um, and can we say what it really did? Because it does things like XYZ is not good enough. So, in my job, what I do now is I show you what it does, I show you the students, whether that's in person or via video or thank you notes, I show you um what your gift did. And going back to staff, how do you get everyone to buy in? I make sure my staff sees that too, that they're interacting with whoever the beneficiary is, whether that's you know seeing the groundbreaking research in a hospital or what art education means to students or for us, um, how nutrition and, and mentorship can change people's young people's lives, we need to show. If we don't show and make it tangible and understandable, forget it. Forget it. They're not going to come back. Think about this. Nationwide, and this isn't just higher ed. This is all numbers, and I have this from Target Analytics. First-year donor retention is about 30%. Give or take a couple of percentages on both words. So I work for Emerald. I'm not in the restaurant business, but can you imagine if 70 percent of the people that came in for the first time at Emerald's restaurant never came back? Oh my God! What kind of dog food did you serve? You know, there's a problem. But here we're like, eh, you know, um, or imagine if if we're cancer research and well, you know, who's my customer? Well, it's it's you know all whatever 250 Americans. Well, we can lose one. Can you? Um, because if you can't, I'm going to take them. Love your customer, or your donor, or somebody else will.
0: Excellent, excellent words. You were an early adopter for uh, days of giving and crowdfunding, and you know giving to specific projects. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess talk a little bit about those, and then yeah, also if there's any um, other things you see in the industry that are uh, tools that we can adapt.
1: Yeah, I'll talk about, I'm going to focus a little bit more on crowdfunding, and a lot of people actually take crowdfunding campaigns and put them in Day of Giving, and I'd argue that's part of the reason why Day of Giving can be um, can be successful. It goes back to, and I say this all the time, annual giving, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> annual giving is not about affordability. Um, in fact, at, when I run phone when I used to run phone a I used to get all my callers to make a gift so when they were talking to an alumnus or alumna they said i can't give i can't afford it the student can say i certainly understand I appreciate where you're coming from we all can give at different levels in fact i made a gift at a level that worked for me i hope you can find you know we can go through that whole script so everyone can give do they choose to what's well, about affinity so if i'm asking for the right thing then i will get a gift i'll give you an example i was at iowa state university and the Black Cultural Center came to us as the end of the fiscal year. Well, at Iowa State at this time, long time ago, I don't know if it's still true today, um, the deans own the alumni. Oh my God, really? They're your alumni? They're everyone's, there's nobody's, right? You you, you don't, control. that happens, right? Well, those are my constituents. That's my constituent. Right. That's, not, that's not how we treat people. Anyway, that happens, right? Okay, so we had already solicited everybody for the colleges, the units, the unrestricted fund and all that, Black Cultural Center comes to us at the end of the year and says, we would like to do a campaign to African-American alumni. I said, we can do it, but um, it's only gonna be non-donors, never, ever, ever givers." And we've already asked them, they have already said no, it's fine. We did a calling campaign. We had 35% participation rate. This was back in the early 90s or mid 90s and a $288 average gift. I'll never forget those exact numbers. People that already said no to us. Why? Because we asked them for something that they cared about. Now, the question is, so I got them in, I got them a gift. What am I going to ask for them next year? I was just talking to a client of mine and they had, and this is a problem we're all going to face. A lot of people this past spring pivoted, sick of that word, but pivoted and did student emergency fund asks and got great success. Mm -hmm. What are you going to ask for them this year? I was just talking to a client of mine and they said, well, the, the pro or the VP or provost, whoever decided that was a one-time thing. It's gone. So well then don't count on retaining those donors
0: Hmm.
1: or can you take your annual fund and talk about, you know, I mean, you're going to have to talk differently to them. So that's what crowdfunding did It allowed us to ask people for something that they care about. And that's true of anything, anywhere. Ask me to get to my alma mater. Maybe ask me to get to political science. Maybe ask me to give to international relations in political science. I'm in, that's what I'm passionate about, even though that's not my business anymore. Or matter of fact, I'll give you a gift three times as big if you ask to give to a scholarship to former telephone callers. I helped them right. do that at Ohio University. So it's about passion and that's what it's all about. We do that at the major gift level. Why don't we do that at the annual giving level? Can we create right. ways to do that? I used to tell as a consultant sometimes when people say, but Brian, I need a million dollars unrestricted to run my budget. Fine, go ask your biggest donor for a million dollars. Done, then you're gonna have to ask the annual fund for your million dollars a year to run your budget.
0: Right but we don't do
1: that, why not? So that is why I think crowdfunding has an important part. I like Day of Giving because you can use crowdfunding at that point. I like Day of Giving even beyond the money it raises. I like that it galvanizes the university to come together on one day to focus on philanthropy and all of a sudden we're all rowing in the same direction and it works. Um, So I like that. I like it galvanizes our volunteers and everybody all at once. I think those are great things. You know, what's next? I think in the immediate future, we're gonna to have to work on donor retention and stewardship more now than ever before. Um, when we think about technology, there are some things out there, you know, with text, we tried to do the text to give 10 years ago, it didn't work, but using texting to get out messages and interacting with people where you're sending mass messages, but from a desk and it's actually a text because people are communicating that way. I think it's great. I think thinking about our volunteers as social media ambassadors um, continues to be something that we need to encourage. I think um, there's certain parts of our fundraising world, and again, I'm focusing more on annual giving here, not some of the other places um, which we could talk about. I do, I do think in the annual giving world, we are missing an opportunity at a lot of different sort of groups of recurring giving. Again, you know, public broadcasting, um, Uh, Health organizations have been brilliant at this in in higher education. In hospitals, some others were were not great at it. It's a great way to increase the average gifts and donor retention. And we can ask additional gifts on top of those as well. So I think we need to do more in recurring giving and make it more digestible for folks as well. So, you know, I could go on and on, but those are just a couple of things at the annual giving level. Um, Beyond that, it's matching people's passions uh, with what you have to offer. And then suiting them and showing them that you are the right investment because that's the choice. Are you the right investment to make?
0: I had a flashback to the to the the talk that you gave at the conference, and you said um, we used the phrase um, "you can give to things like." Yeah. yeah. That was your your saying, and, and your your point, I believe, was you know um, what specifically will my donation do. Yeah. And, um, and so with that, I mean, um, there's kind of this internal debate, um, you know, the purpose of annual giving, is it to get unrestricted dollars or is it to bring new people on board? If it's to bring new people on board, then to your point, like, let's go after the, you know, the, the projects. Let's talk about the projects to get, to, to get them into our, our atmosphere, Absolutely. Then, um, so, yeah.
1: Actually. Yeah, absolutely. You know, other data. Interesting. Again, looking at some data recently in, in higher ed. On average, it takes 18 years between someone's first gift to you and someone's first gift of a thousand dollars or more. 18 years. Um, and then we talk mm-hmm. about overall donor retention it's at about 60 percent. If we go on other outside of higher ed, what are we talking, mid 50s? Um, so most people aren't going to even ever get there but we got to bring them in first year donor retention rates i already mentioned it, about 30 percent it goes mm-hmm. to about 50 to 60 percent if we talk about two-year donor retention rates so we got to bring them in at any cost and then keep them and move them up the get better. and that's the way i do think about an annual giving is it's not just about the gift this year i kind of want to get rid of the word annual it's about bringing them in moving them up the pipeline and then getting there at those higher levels you know i challenge any of anyone okay take away you know the the five percent at the top as an organization that their first gift you ever was you know a thousand dollars look at someone in particular at institutions of higher ed or maybe if you're a museum that's had you know converting ticket sales or admissions to donors look at some of your higher level folks and look at how long they've been with you if you don't make the right choices now you're not going to have them 10 years from now so you're 100 percent correct it's about that pipeline i think
0: um, so finally 2020 has been a crazy year. Uh, it's not over. What advice would you give organizations moving yeah. into the fourth quarter?
1: I think acquisition is going to be tough. There's some organizations that are going to succeed in acquisition. Um, you know, there's a lot of issues that are strongly upfront right now. Um, obviously, as we talk about some social justice issues, uh, I, I'm sensitive to the hospitality industry, the mass layoffs, uh, that leads to hunger and poverty and some things that are being sort of um, elevated now more than ever. So if you're not one of those, how are you relevant in that space? Well, of course you're relevant. You know, art is still relevant. Healthcare is relevant. We can all talk about our messages being relevant. We need to think how we keep our messages relevant, but still being in true to who we are. Where I'm going with all that is acquisition might be tough. Reactivation might be tough for us. Donor retention. Now more than ever, I know I'm beating this drum over and over and over again, but donor retention ever before. How do we get folks to stay with us um, and keep them with us? Because times will change. That's the one thing we know, right? Times will change. And if we do the right things now, when we come out of this, hopefully, um, we're, you're going to have them. And the choices you make now are going to impact what happens two years from now. And I already, you know, have talked to some people about that. They chose not to do certain things this past spring, and they're already seeing the impact of what happened. So those that are close to you, love them more than ever. Understand your database. Start finding pockets. So, okay, I'm not going to do all reactivated, but let's look at those that are one-year lapsed, but were a donor for 10 years prior to lapsing. Let's look at, you know, these little pockets. Look at who last year gave, you know, $500 $500 and went down to $250 this year. Let's find out why. Let's maybe ask them for a second gift to $250 and get them back up to $500. So let's look at some data points that maybe we haven't before at the, the $250 level, you know, or excuse me, at the upgrades and downgrades. As we think more about major gifts, again, and, and I'm focusing a little bit more here on the annual, we, we could talk you know, at a lot of different levels, mm-hmm. um, but continue to steward your big donors, even if this is not the year for them. We have a big event coming up here. There's a couple of people that have said, no, I can't get involved. I'm going to treat them like a donor this year. Anyways, I'm going to treat them just like they did make their big gift because if I do that two years from now, when their times are a little bit better, they're going to come back to me and maybe not somebody else. So treat your recently lab centers just like donors as well.
0: So uh, talk a little bit about the Emerald Legacy Foundation. Um, I saw uh, the initiative. I know the pandemic has been particularly hard on the restaurant industry. Yeah. Talk about some of the things you got going on there.
1: Yeah. So we raise the money from events, but it's basically the same thing. I cultivate and steward donors just like everybody else. When someone raises their paddle for $50,000, that's just their major gift. They don't even know what they're buying on the other end. <laughs> it's not worth $50,000. But the money we raise, we give to youth organizations and we work very close with those organizations to inspire a mentor, enable youth to reach their full potential. And we do it through culinary nutrition education. So we do a lot, of, we have a big project nationwide that we had launched two years ago about uh, culinary gardens and teaching kitchens in schools um, in particular in, in sort of lower income or disadvantaged communities. Uh, we do a lot with hospitality and culinary training for people with developmental disabilities. These kids could be super successful um, in the world of hospitality if we train and work with them the right way. Same with people that are maybe from economically disadvantaged or other unfortunate situations. Uh, we're doing some nutrition education with uh, young boys that are fatherless here in New Orleans. There's a great organization called Son of a Saint. Um, we do a variety of things, but one of the biggest campaigns we're doing right now that is normally we focus on youth, but Emerald being the hospitality industry, we're doing a big campaign right now. Uh, the Emerald Lagasse Foundation Hospitality Industry Relief Fund, a lot, Um, but working with an organization out of Houston where people that are really on the down and outs that were in hospitality, I mean, they're destroyed, folks, please go out, go to your restaurants, please support these people. They were barely getting by before. Um, They're not making it. People can't get the prescriptions. They're going to get evicted. emergencies are happening. So uh, we've already given $150,000. We're trying to get that number up um, and and to do that to help those people out as well. And we're focusing on the Gulf South, not that everywhere's not important. So um, sure. those are our big things, but you know, we, we can change people's lives through food and nutrition. It's the one thing we all share together. And mm-hmm. we use that commonality and that passion of Emeralds to make a difference in people's lives.
0: Where can people find you? Where can people find uh, the foundation?
1: Yeah, emerald.org. E-M-E-R-I-L dot org. Check it out. Some really cool stuff. Um, we even have auctions. You can anybody can go in and bid on some things sometimes. Um, other events that we have, a lot of fun, a lot of stuff with celebrity chefs and winemakers and all that. It's a dream job, like I said. Uh I, I'm at B K-I-S-H at emerald.org. Um, you can reach me there as well and uh, as you mentioned, Alex, I do work with Campbell & Company as a consultant, focusing mostly on mass giving and uh, do work with Target as well. I do those on the weekends and evenings. How about that? Um, and it's just something I believe in and I'm, I'm happy to help out people as much as I can. And thank you, Alex, for sh- you know gathering people together to share knowledge and help each other. This is a great business and uh, we all together need to, to make it even
0: greater. Brian. Kish, annual giving guru. Uh, Thanks so much for being on. Thanks for watching. Don't forget to subscribe down below. You can also find additional content by searching the YouTube page. And finally, you can follow me on social media for all things relating to FRN Fundraise Now linked below. Have an awesome day.